My name is Claire Press, and this is Wardrobe Crisis, the podcast that unzips fashion's issues. Do you mind if I move the microphone? I just, I need to lounge. <laughs> Devotion, darling. Shut up. I think as humans, we are major forces to be also reckoned with. And I think creativity always flourishes when there is any type of crisis. That's been the absolute pleasure of, is watching talented people who have skills far and beyond mine come together and work collectively. Einstein always said, nature has all the answers. Just look to nature, it has all the answers. Just because I happen to be able to source them easiest, I guess, I was buying original wool jackets from the 1950s. I was buying them at Portobello Market. And a one man's rubbish is another man's gold. For me, it was about age. It was about the attitude of people. And it's about how they're wearing the clothes, why they're wearing the clothes, and capturing a bit of their wisdom and empowering people to look at aging differently. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. We are so hot right now. I'm back from an extraordinary experience at the Copenhagen Fashion Summit where I chaired a panel wearing my Vogue Australia sustainability hat and I interviewed a bunch of fascinating fashion figures for future podcasts. And I'm really excited to bring you the first one of those now. And it is, I think, a really important interview. It's certainly a very important subject. It's with my friend, Sarah Ziff, who is the founder of the Model Alliance, the New York-based organisation that advocates for fair working conditions for fashion models everywhere. We literally recorded this for you in the middle of the night. It was after the great big posh dinner that is held in the presence of Crown Princess Mary to celebrate the end of the Copenhagen Fashion Summit. And we got out of there at perhaps, I don't know, 1.30. And Sarah was due to fly back to New York very early the next morning. So we'd literally run out of hours in the day and we just decided, okay, it's now or never. And it was now. So I'm very, very glad that we did do that. And I'm very, very glad that Sarah agreed to record this interview in the small hours in order to share this very important story with you. Now, she was in Copenhagen with the model Edie Campbell and the casting director James Scully to speak about the RESPECT programme, which they launched with an open letter signed by more than 100 fashion models in the wake of Me Too. And it calls for fashion houses, media companies and model agencies to commit to, and I quote, an orderly and fair process for addressing charges of abuse. And they want this backed up with training and education initiatives. Now, among the model signatories are lots of big names, just a couple, Mila Jovovich, Karen Elson, actually Australia's Robin Lawley, but there's loads more and we will share a link. Now that letter begins, Over the past year, many courageous individuals have revealed the dark truth of sexual harassment in the fashion industry. These concerns have yet to be addressed in a meaningful and sustainable way, they said. And as models, our images serve commercial purposes, but our bodies remain our own. 
So their proposal includes the need for a stronger, enforceable workplace standards to protect underage models, but all models, and to ensure, for example, that they are never asked to pose nude without prior agreement. They ask for a confidential and secure complaints process, and they're looking for a neutral body to be set up to monitor and investigate accusations and complaints. Now, Sarah says one in five models is in debt to her agency. So this is not only an issue of sexual intimidation, misconduct and abuse. It's a power issue. And it is also a feminist issue, although, of course, models of all genders are represented. Now, just a bit of background on some of the things that we touch on. Fashion's big Me Too media moment began with Cameron Russell sharing anonymous stories on social media from models detailing sexual misconduct and abuse. And this was in October of 2017. And it rightly got all the headlines. But Sarah has been raising these issues for years. And as you will hear, it's been hard to get people to listen, let alone act. Now, in January 2018, the New York Times ran a big story detailing accusations made by 15 male models who worked with Bruce Weber, the photographer, and they had apparently described a pattern of what they said was unnecessary nudity and coercive sexual behaviour, often during photo shoots. And another 13 male models and assistants had, going back to the 1990s, reportedly claimed that Mary Testino subjected them to unwanted sexual advances. Now, both photographers deny the allegations. Condé Nast International responded with a new code of conduct to safeguard the dignity and well-being of all who work with its brands, and I'm quoting from it there, and outlining guidelines for shoots. In April, in an interview with Numero magazine, Karl Lagerfeld said that he was fed up with the Me Too movement, and he said... Quote, I read somewhere that now you must ask a model if she is comfortable with posing. It's simply too much. From now on, as a designer, you can't do anything. If you don't want your pants pulled about, don't even become a model. Join a nunnery. There will always be a place for you in the convent. Oh, Carl. Now, Sarah and the Model Alliance spoke out and reacted to those comments. And Sarah said... Mr. Lagerfeld's flippant dismissal of reports of abuse and his characterisation of models who have come forward as stupid, toxic and sordid creatures who should quit their profession if they do not like how they are treated surely demands action. So this is controversial, difficult, unpleasant and scary terrain. But these are questions and issues that we need to, as an industry, face up to and start discussing so that we can find a decent, fair and acceptable way forward. I think you're going to really enjoy listening to Sarah, who is an expert on these issues, but who's also just a, a really inspiring individual. She's a passionate changemaker who has campaigned for things like better garment worker conditions in Bangladesh. She has a degree in politics from Colombia. She's also a filmmaker. She was, of course, a model herself, and she did all the big shows, McQueen, Dior, Prada, Chanel. But these days, she's a tireless campaigner. And the best bit, she wins. In February, the Model Alliance and the CFDA collaborated to introduce private change rooms for models at New York Fashion Week. Now, 
Why it took so long, I'm not sure. It should have happened a long time ago, right? But this is an example of the Model Alliance winning and making real change. And I can't wait to hear what you make of this discussion. As always, please do get in touch on Instagram or Twitter. I'm at Mrs. Press. And I'm over the moon if you leave ratings and reviews in iTunes. Oh, and also, by the way, we're on Spotify, finally. So now Android users can find us there and catch up with all of the shows every week. Sarah, it's really lovely for me to get this opportunity to talk to you about these issues, which you and I have discussed before, and I know you've worked on for a very long time, but right now, it's a moment. Or is it a movement? (laughs) Nice answer. (laughs) What happened today? So we're recording this at the Copenhagen Fashion Summit. You just spoke on a panel that was about Me Too and fashion's response to or crisis with. Do you want to just sum up briefly what happened on that panel today? Who was on it with you? What did you discuss? I was joined by the wonderful James Scully, a casting director who's on the Model Alliance's advisory board, Edie Campbell, who's equally lovely, and uh, Mary Claire at Caring. She's their head of sustainability. And so what did you discuss? We spoke about fashion's response or lack thereof to the Me Too movement. I think One of the points that I think I made, I hope it came across, was that although we're, you know, a good six months into this movement, I think that we've heard crickets from the fashion industry. And I don't think that we've seen any kind of meaningful change. And of course, you know, LVMH and Caring had already come out with their charter and Condé Nast put forward a code of conduct. And I think that those are responses that are to be expected and are well-meaning. But my concern is that, and this is not just my concern, this is, I think, true across the board with other models, is that we need a much more robust, serious effort. And I think if every company is going to say they abhor sexual harassment and assault, well, if that's the case, then are you willing to actually commit to no longer working with harassers. We're going to get into the detail of what you're asking for and also the extraordinary action that you took today. But first of all, let's put some context around this for listeners who may not understand the background to this or may not be up to speed on exactly what we're talking about and also what role you play in this. So let's start with the Model Alliance. What is it? The Model Alliance is a uh, research policy and advocacy organization in the fashion industry. And we promote fair working conditions and sustainable practices from the runway to the factory floor. And this work really grew out of my own personal experiences working as a model starting at 14 years old, which is crazy when I think back on it. And that was a long time ago. So I, at this point, I'm more an advocate than I am a model. And I I was fairly fortunate in my career and I worked as a face of big brands like Stella McCartney and Tommy Hilfiger and, you know, had a lot of really positive experiences. But that said, I also experienced the pitfalls of working in what is largely an unregulated industry. But also an adult industry, a professional industry that's run by grown-ups. You're a child. Right. And I think it would be a mistake to say, oh, we just get rid of the underage models and everything's fine. 
yes, certainly there is a connection between the extreme youth of models and this gangly physique, this unrealistic size zero body image, which is not sustainable as, you know, it would be very strange if, if women's bodies didn't change through puberty and they didn't grow breasts and hips as everyone does. But to just say, oh, well, we just won't use under 18s anymore. And then everything will be fine. And then everything is fine. No, I mean, there. I can't count the number of people who've come to us with pressures to lose weight post-18, pressures to give in to sexual demands in their early 20s. But the Model Alliance essentially acts like a union. Or is that the wrong language? Well, we approached established unions before we even formed the Model Alliance and asked them if they would extend membership to models, and they said no. As independent contractors, we're unable to unionize. So we kind of had to try to reinvent the wheel, which is why I formed the Model Alliance. What I'm really excited about is to be introducing a program, the RESPECT program, which we announced today in Copenhagen, that puts forward an opportunity to companies agencies, publishing companies, fashion brands to sign a legally binding agreement to uphold standards, which we all agree to. Everyone abhors sexual harassment. Everyone believes that people should be treated with basic dignity and respect. But until we're actually willing to enshrine those in enforceable commitments, I don't think we're going to see meaningful and lasting change. So before we get on to the initiatives that launched today, just to go back to decoding what the Model Alliance does. So you can't call yourself a union. Workers are contractors. When did you set it up and what exactly can you do and what do you seek to do as advocates for models? We have done some legislative advocacy. So a few years ago, we passed the Child Model Act in New York State, which it's shocking, really. When we looked at the laws on the books, we found that child models, models under 18, did not have even basic labor protections. And you're talking about people who are the most visible workers in fashion supply chain who don't even have the most basic rights. But even your use of that phrase supply chain and applying it to models, that's unusual. We don't normally think about models as being part of the supply chain. We normally think about supply chain being garment workers or perhaps taking it further back to the cotton growers. Sometimes I know that now at Fashion Revolution, for example, we're trying to extend that definition to say the consumer is part of the supply chain. So of course a model is, but we don't normally use that language. Well, people often trivialize models, but we are the faces of big multinational corporations which are very powerful. So yes, we are workers. Modeling is a job and we deserve to be treated with dignity and respect like anyone else who works for a living. So that legislation that you helped pass in New York State to... To extend labor protections to models as child performers okay. in the same category as actors and singers and dancers. What about the rest of the U.S.? We have actually introduced federal legislation, but under this administration, I'm not holding my breath. Okay. So just to clarify, the Model Alliance is purely US-based and only active in the United States? We're global. Okay. There, there's no geographical right. uh, limits on what we can work on, but we're New York-based and currently we have two bills pending, one in New York, one in California. And those are what? We have introduced the 
Models Harassment Protection Act in New York, which would extend models protection against sexual and other forms of harassment. Yet another shocking gap in the law. And that's really due to the sort of the multi-level structure of hiring between models and agencies and clients, whether that be a magazine or a brand. When we talk about protecting models at work, what are we talking about? When I think about union rights and the rights of workers, when I'm thinking about garment workers, I'm thinking about unfair pay, harassment on the job. Yeah. But what do models face? Surprisingly, they're not all that different from a lot of low-wage workers' concerns. You know, one in five models is working in debt to her agency. Is that right? I've never heard that. Yeah. And that's not because she's not working. It's because she might be getting paid in trade, meaning like a tank top oh, or no, a tote bag. Oh, no, absolutely contra. Or, do you want to do this job, we'll give you a pair of shorts? Not really. I'd quite like to get the rent. Right. You can't pay your rent with a tank top. And then we did a survey and found that um, the vast majority of models, I believe it was around like 85% of models, had been put on the spot to do a nude shoot. No informed prior consent. How many girls did you survey? I think it was around 100 models. God. Working in New York. And so that's the reality every day. I mean, we, we hear about it. We're hearing about it more in the context of Me Too, and we're going to get onto that. But let's just list all of the things that potentially might go wrong if you don't have this apparatus in place to look after models' rights at work. So it could be that you're not getting paid at all because you're getting paid in a tank top. could be that you're not getting paid on time. could be that you're subjected to undue harassment to do things that you don't feel comfortable with at work. What else? Right. I mean, nearly one of three models report inappropriate touching on the job. 85% of female models have reported being asked to pose nude at a job or casting without prior notice. Nearly one out of three also report being pressured to have sex on the job. What? And I mean, actually, I know this because you and I have discussed it, but I didn't know the figures and the figures are shocking. I'm not shocked by them, but that's because I guess I've been in this space for a while. But it's so common. It's this so, is not isolated. Instances. It's so common. And you're talking about a really young, vulnerable group of people who maybe the only other job they've done is babysitting. Like this is their first experience no of having a professional. Yeah. Suddenly all of their support structures are at home and they're right. elsewhere. Right. And then so that's just the sort of sexual harassment piece of this. There's also health concerns, which I think at this point are well known, but they're often framed as sort of consumer protection issues. You know, oh, we shouldn't be subjected to the sight of that skinny model. It will make us feel bad. Right. As opposed to this being a labor issue. So we partnered with Harvard on an extensive research study. It's actually ongoing, but we published in an academic journal and found that four out of five models were determined to be underweight and then of that, over half of them were told they wouldn't book jobs unless they lost more weight. Okay. How much of this, though, is culture that needs to change but that is not going to be changed, for example, by models banding together? Well, I don't think there's a silver bullet. Mm. I think I'm think i just thinking about the thinness thing. It's such a broad cultural thing, isn't it? I don't know how we regulate against it. Well, so we actually, part of our study was to survey the models themselves and ask them how, what policy initiatives they thought were both feasible and politically expedient. And 
the response was models felt they need worker protections. They were not at all in favor of restrictions around body mass index. They didn't think that they should be punished for being, in some cases, naturally thin. And it is very strange in some ways that you have, you know, I understand that on its face you see thin models, sometimes very thin models, and the sense is, okay, this is like a public health issue and we simply have to just ban people who are under a certain BMI without considering, well, maybe the brands should offer more than one sample size. Maybe it's logical that people would go to extremes to lose weight and fit the sample size if the sample size is a size zero, which only like 1% of the population could naturally fit into yeah. anyway. But these are, how do you rein this in and then say, how could we change this with a framework? So if we're talking, for example, about a code of conduct or about new laws even, what are you asking for and looking to do with the model alliance? And I guess in a minute, we're going to talk about Me Too and about the very clear and obvious route that we do need to take to try to combat sexual harassment and misconduct and abuse and violence on the job. I think that brands need to offer more than one sample size. I think that it's not just about resizing the sample size. It's about any standard people are going to go to extremes to reach. You need to accommodate a wealth of size and shape and beauty. And I don't think that that's an unreasonable request. It's funny because six years ago, I tried to push the industry to create backstage changing areas that offered some privacy. And I was treated like I was asking for the moon. And to me, this didn't seem like an unreasonable request. Well, finally, post Harvey Weinstein news, we've been able to create private changing areas backstage at New York, which I hope is just a first step and which I think should actually be compulsory. But there's certainly been a cultural shift in terms of what is considered reasonable, the industry's willingness to acknowledge these problems in the first place. And that, of course, that has to happen before we can move towards solutions. But let's unpick those different issues because they're very different issues. So the idea of an industry that promotes overly thin models or pressures models to lose weight, that's a separate issue, I would say. Perhaps you're going to say they're all interconnected. But to me, that's one thing. And then being in an unprofessional working environment where there's no regulation to protect you and give you those safeguards that most of us who do nine to five jobs would just take as red. That's a separate issue. And perhaps then the sexual harassment issue comes under that umbrella. But how do you kind of, how are you squaring this up? What are you asking? And which areas is the Model Alliance focusing on? And can you give us a bit of insight onto how you're trying to tackle that and what some of the tools you're proposing are? Well, ultimately, we're talking about a power imbalance, right? We're talking about the models on the one hand and the agencies and clients on the other. And it's funny because we're treated as independent contractors, but we don't contract independently with our clients. We don't even enter into contracts with our clients. We simply go show up where we're told by our agent. We don't negotiate our own rates. We don't decide who we work with. We have actually very little independence or autonomy in the working relationship. So... In many ways, it feels like we're just sort of like used like trading cards. It's interesting because um, 
the parallels with the garment industry are very clear when you put it like that. And that because is because no one has to take responsibility. And, and that is, I think, the broader narrative arc, right? On we couldn't seem more different. We, you know, garment workers working in developing countries like Bangladesh under the worst conditions, literally risking their lives on the job. And then on the complete opposite end, we have some of the most glamorous women in the world who simultaneously are also trying to have a voice in their work. And this is a, an industry that is built on the backs of mostly women and girls who, sure, in some cases are financially empowered and it's given them opportunities that they wouldn't have otherwise, but are asking for basic human rights. And now we've moved to a, a place where this can't just be a voluntary CSR initiative. We want legally binding agreements where companies, if they're serious about upholding human rights on either end of the supply chain, are willing to actually commit to that through a binding contract. So what do you want for models? Models are, and this is not just me calling for this, over 100 models have signed a, an open letter calling on modeling agencies, fashion brands, and publishers to join the RESPECT program and to uphold a code of conduct through a legally binding agreement. What exactly is the Model Alliance asking for when it comes to ensuring that models have rights? What are those rights? We want to foster a safe and fair working environment. And our primary concern is to work free from sexual harassment and abuse. But we know that sexual harassment doesn't exist in a vacuum. So if, for example, a model is not getting paid for her work or is having to wait months or up to a year to get paid for a job, obviously that economic insecurity makes her much more vulnerable to unwanted sexual advances. So we're, we're really trying to address concerns that would change dynamics so that we're not working in an industry that is fertile ground for yeah, abuse. Yeah. Today you launched an extraordinary initiative on social media and online, which I think is very bold and which I know that The Cut reported on and I applaud it. I think it's excellent. So talk to me about the open letter and about the respect campaign. What does it mean? What is it? Well, thank you. <laughs> so over 100 models have signed an open letter to the industry, and they're calling on companies across the board to join the RESPECT program, which is a program that has been driven and designed by the models themselves. We know our working conditions better than anyone, and we need to be part of the solution. And I think too often companies take a sort of a top-down approach where they parachute in and decide what the solution is going to be without even consulting the people whose rights are at stake. So we've spent several months now actually sitting in listening sessions across the country from New York to Los Angeles, talking with models about, you know, what are your concerns? If, we, if you could imagine a perfect world, if you could work in a, an industry where you felt safe and you felt like a creative partner and, you know, all of these great things what would that look like? And what are your ideas? And, and what did they tell you? Well, 
it became clear very quickly that sexual abuse is pervasive at work, but there are a lot of other factors that contribute to that work environment. And that ultimately has to do with a very skewed power dynamic. It's that, the same story everywhere, isn't it? Yeah. When we talk about industries that are overwhelmingly built on the work of women and often and mostly black and brown women in the global south. But, you know, when we look at these power dynamics, it's the same old story all the time, isn't it? I mean, I'm thinking off the top of my head about the work that Sarah Jayaraman does with the um, Restaurant Workers Union, Mm -hmm. RSC. And it's a similar story, isn't it? It's basically women working for men (laughs) at a power disadvantage. Working for tips. Yeah. So actually, I, I was in San Francisco a couple of days ago with Saru. and Oh, were you? She's yeah. amazing. She came to mind. I found out about her work, actually, through the Time's Up Now campaign. I hadn't heard of her until she turned up on the Golden Globes red carpet. There you and go. And then I investigated and realized that she was, of course, a massive, powerful player in this industry. She's worked for many, many years advocating for restaurant workers' rights. But actually, that campaign gave her a platform that perhaps made people like me sit up and take notice of an industry I hadn't thought about very much. Yeah. And it's and she leveraged that. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, she, you know, now has had quite a few famous Hollywood actresses sign on to a letter to Governor Cuomo calling for one fair wage, which I know she's been working on for many years. Mm-hmm. This precedes the Me Too movement or the national discussion. But you've also been working on this for many, many years. This is true. And the Me Too, let's not call it a movement. Let's call it a moment, as Tarana Burke does. The moment, the Me Too hashtag moment that's seen this extraordinary lens on something that's been hidden before has given an opportunity for people to come out and say, we know this is happening, let's change it. How do you feel about that, though? Because you've been working on this for 10 years before anyone wanted to listen. Well, now is certainly the time to move towards solutions. And I think that that means, sure, legislative advocacy. It also means calling on companies to, you know, we're putting forward through the RESPECT program a private sector initiative, but that has teeth If you put forward a corporate social responsibility initiative that is purely voluntary, where there are no no consequences if you violate a code or a charter, then I'm sorry, but it's essentially a PR move. And if not now to remedy these problems, when? So what exactly are you asking companies and brands to do with respect? We've developed a code of conduct with input from numerous stakeholders, including the models themselves, which I think is beneficial because we want this to be as comprehensive as possible. And we want all companies to be willing to enter into legally binding agreements to uphold that mutually agreed upon standard. And agencies. From agencies to publishers to fashion brands. How confident are you that the industry is going to get on board? They're going to get on board. They're (laughs) going to have to get on board. I liked how quick you were with that. Well, it's happening. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they can do it now or they can wait and we can draw this out, but it's going to happen. Let's talk more about Me Too and fashion's Me Too crisis. For those who don't know, Cameron Russell, who's an incredible model based in New York, she used her Instagram as a anonymous by choice, if you wished to remain anonymous, tool to spread some of these stories. In October of 2017, it began 
I've forgotten how many days it over, you know, three or four days or something. She posted many, many, it was over 80 messages that she had received from models who she'd assured she would share their stories anonymously on social media. And these stories were stories of abuse at the hands of photographers on shoots. My goodness, it was eye-opening. I mean, this on the back of the Weinstein revelations was interesting. I mean, this happened before the Time's Up Now campaign played out. So you had the Weinstein revelations and then you had Cameron Russell saying, this is a problem in fashion too, this is not just Hollywood. And it was it was shocking to the industry. I mean, those stories were horrendous. Well... You already we've, knew about them, right? You're just like I knew that story. Uh, well, I actually, your face. well, we've been working on this for almost seven years, and we've reached out to people in the industry for a long time to ask for their support to actually address these concerns, whether it was enacting child labor legislation or otherwise. And it's been like crickets from the industry, from everyone, until October. Like crickets is a funny phrase. Like crickets, meaning disappointing. And I... People didn't want to speak up? Nobody wanted to speak up. And, you know, it's nice to see that people are rising to the occasion. Maybe they feel emboldened. You know, Me Too is all about not being alone, right? But don't you think the Harvey thing was like lancing a boil and people went, oh, I'm going to do it now? Yeah, which is fantastic. I mean, it's got to happen sooner than later. But you're saying you spent all these years saying, we know you've been through this. Why can't you speak up? And then Yeah, suddenly- and I mean, even to this day, I mean, we, we launched this respect program today and have over 100 signatures from some of the top models in the world. There are still models who are scared to put their names on that letter, not because they don't agree with it, but because they fear repercussions from their agencies. Many years ago, you raised with your agency the fact that you suspected or knew that Terry Richardson was engaging in sexual misconduct at work and abusing models and making models feel uncomfortable and compromised and potentially worse. What happened? I was really disappointed by the response, that the response was sort of a shrug, a, you know, you're being uptight, you have a problem and oh come on get over it that's just terry when was this this was around 2010 so eight years ago and was this from personal experience of working with him or this was from hearing from other models that they had concerns i've worked with him i know a lot of other models who've worked with him and this was based on not just my personal experience but the concerns of many other models. My concern was that kids were being put in very compromising situations with someone who I think the industry knew, but didn't seem to take issue with the fact that he was sexually abusing girls. There was a revelationary article that was published in New York magazine that detailed many instances of this behaviour at the hands of Terry Richardson. It was a scandal. It was reported then in all the newspapers internationally. It was a big global thing. And then, not much. And I say this because I remember it really clearly because I wrote a story about it when I was working at Sunday Style. An op-ed thing about how disgusting it was and how, come on, couldn't we have noticed by just looking at these pictures that maybe there was something awry? But I so, thought that moment was the moment when we'd have no more questions around whether or not this was okay. It was clearly not. Well, look, but he kept working. Fashion just said, never mind, it's just Terry. Yeah, and guess what? 
I don't have any personal stake in this. I'm just saying this as an observer. Bruce Weber, his name was on the front page of the New York Times a couple of months ago with numerous allegations by young men. We should say for legal terms, as yet unproven in Bruce's case. Right. I'm just reporting what the New York Times had on its cover. Yeah. And we all saw that cover. As of this week, there have been stories about Bruce's back and he's photographing models on the beach. And, you know, it's not my or your job to be the judge of whether that's appropriate or not. But I do question why the industry thinks it's fair or even like companies would think it's in their interest to hire people who are at this point known sexual predators. I mean, because that is a major liability. And frankly, they're, that is just simply not a smart business move. Forget morality. I think we probably have to say suspected sexual predators when it comes to some of these cases because they're as yet untried in a court, right? Sure. And that is why you need independent investigations. And these issues need to be addressed in a professional, prompt way so that if people are found to have been serial harassers, that they are no longer working or no longer enabled to abuse people, which I witnessed myself has happened in the past. And I'm tired of seeing that play out Mm. over and over again. Also, I think that culturally fashion has a problem where we accept, you know, when we were talking before, just for an example of saying, oh, well, that's just Terry's style. We seem to have this culture of making excuses for the creative genius, right? Mm -hmm. And this is something Edie Campbell raised in her letter. I'm thinking right now about Karl Lagerfeld saying, me too, ridiculous. Oh, don't be a model if you don't want to have your clothes moved around. I mean, the way that we accept clearly inappropriate statements from people that we venerate as creative geniuses is fashion's problem. And what do you mean? Well, what do you make of that? What do you make of the lack of response to the Lagerfeld comments? Look, I think we've got this real problem, as I said, with this idea that the artists can get away with whatever they want because they're the creative genius. And I think that we see that play out often in different ways, never mind just sexually, but in other kinds of bad behaviour. We say, oh, it's okay. We let them off because they are... You know, maybe in other industries they say we let off the CEO because they're the boss. In fashion we say we let off the creative because they're eccentric, because they're a little bit different and we can't expect them to conform to the norm. So in that sense, you you don't see fashion as being insular. You see that as like fashion being on the same wavelength as the music industry with R. Kelly or the film industry with Woody Allen. Yeah, a little bit, probably. I mean, I'm not the expert here, but I think just from looking at the culture... I think that's what we do. I think we make excuses for the person who is the great artist or the legend or the, I don't know, the person we put on a pedestal. But don't you think that if... I'm not saying we should. I'm saying that's just what we do. If I said what Carl said, I wouldn't be getting away with it, would I? Well, you know, I did have quite a few editors message me saying, thank you for speaking out about this because we're not allowed to write about it because I guess there are advertising dollars at stake. But we can quote you talking about it. Wow. What do we need to do to sweep out this canker? (laughs) Shakespearean. I'm getting Shakespearean on you. We need the respect respect program. Yes, that is 
but will fix all of our problems in this world. What are the challenges to making that happen then? So obviously there's a will and you found a way, but what are the challenges? The challenges are any company is going to prefer to go with the status quo, the path of least resistance. Oh, you know, sort of say this is this is a moment and we abhor sexual harassment. We won't tolerate it. And then as soon as the news cycle d- dies down, then they'll, you know, send the next 15-year-old off the boat from Lithuania to uh, whatever photographer's studio. And, uh, and and the story will repeat. And, and unfortunately, we've been living through this cycle for quite a while. And And the question is, you know, are we actually willing to address this in a meaningful, lasting way now? Well, now is the moment. It certainly is. If not now, when? And what we're asking for is is simply to uphold the standards that we all, I believe, stand by morally at this stage. It shouldn't be really debatable. But, you know, I think at first glance, companies, any company is going to be concerned about evolving, but it's inevitable. I just want to ask you, because I'm listening to you talk with so much passion about how you want to create change in the pathways that you think that we might be able to use to get there. Where does it come from in you? Where's the fighting spirit come from? You were 14 when you began to be a model. What did you want to be when you were nine? <laughs> well, I, come I asked from this a... question to Cameron Russell. She said president. <laughs> yeah, I come from a family of academics. And, you know, my dad is a scientist and my mom is a lawyer. What kind of scientist? He's a neurobiologist, so he studies how memory works. And in some ways, it's funny. I actually, I guess I sort of combined their work in a, an unexpected way. I run a research and policy organization in the fashion industry. So I get to do scientific research and create legislation. Did they instill values, clear moral values in you as a kid? I went to a Quaker school which uh, is Whereabouts? in New York. I grew up actually in Soho, but Did before, Who but, does that? No well, one, before no Soho was uh, a shopping mall. Right. And um, I certainly grew up with, a, you know, a strong value in education. So of course my family was horrified when I decided well, to I work as a model. I was going to say, what happened? Were you scouted? I was scouted on the street when I was 14, and it was like better than babysitting and actually very flattering and exciting to be able to do this work. And yeah, and then I sort of ended up deferring college and was working full time and living out of a suitcase and doing the shows. What was your experience of that like? I think it would be very different now in the age of Instagram and having more of a voice and, you know, not just existing as a two-dimensional image. I found it pretty mind-numbing, to be honest. But just boring or disempowering? Or did you have a good experience? I mean, you worked with some great clients. I mean, I had good personal interactions with individuals, but the sort of overall picture, I felt like I was having to sacrifice my sense of self and interest in really other things to kind of maintain a blank slate and just sort of make money while I could during this short window of time. So how long did you model full-time for? Out of high school, so 18 to about 24, 5. 
And just fast forward, so you've worked as a model. I'm getting the idea that you had a pretty good run. Yeah. You didn't hate it. You might have been a bit bored. I, You know, that's how I paid for college. That's how I bought an apartment. These are good things. These are good things. But it also, the discrepancy between this image of empowerment, of female beauty, of, you know, all of these things, and my lived experience, there was such a a huge gap there. And I've come to realize that we work in an industry that is really powerful and that has a lot of influence and that touches the lives of a huge many men and women, particularly women across the globe. And as the faces of this industry, surely, especially now with technology and being more multidimensional, we're actually way more powerful than we could ever imagine to make huge changes in the world. And I'm trying to harness that. Hmm. Two more things. So just very briefly, how did you go about setting up the Model Alliance? Did you do it alone? You can't have an alliance on your own. How'd that work? Well, it really grew out of making a documentary. I made a, a feature documentary about my and other models' experiences working in the industry, the good and the bad. So yeah, Picture Me, that came out in uh, 2009. It was at festivals and then it was in theaters in 2010. And it really gave me and other models an opportunity to speak in a very unfiltered way about our experiences in the industry. And, and you know, it wasn't perfect. It's not, you know... I have to say I've never a mas- seen it. It's not a masterpiece it. in any sense, but it's actually continued to be very relevant. And it, it was just, you know, me and my then boyfriend, who was like a film student at, at Tisch School of the Arts, shooting on these little digital handheld cameras and giving cameras to friends of mine who were models and trying to make sense of our experiences. It was very innocent. But we called years of footage and made a feature film that ended up like screening at the Angelica and was on like American Airlines flights for a while. But that gave me a platform to then try to what I thought was going to be unionizing the industry, but I realized wasn't possible. And so then I kind of had to reinvent the wheel and think about how do we create fair working conditions in the gig economy, in a global industry. How are you structuring the Model Alliance? Obviously, you have a board. Talk to me a little bit about just how it operates and who else is helping you get this show on the road. Well, I work with an amazing team of people. Uh, Some of them have been with me since the beginning. Actually, Kelly DeSantis, who developed our website and really does all our whole like sort of online presence has worked with me since before we officially launched. And then, you know, I have come to work with lawyers and advocates and a range of people in this space. Some of them are not necessarily experts in the modeling industry, but have worked on supply chain issues Others are, you know, like presidents of modeling agencies who, you know, this is their core business, but they have very little understanding of labor law or the various factors at play that we've been sort of grappling with for a long time. So I was on hiatus a couple of years ago. I went to graduate school and took a year to just sort of process all of this. And 
do some research and study it. That's actually when I was at Harvard, it was when I met Dr. Bryn Austin at Harvard School of Public Health and Harvard Medical School. And that's when we started this research partnership on the sort of the health issues. And I took courses at Harvard Law School and got to think more deeply about how to put forward sort of legally binding commitments for people who are working freelance, Mm. who Mm. are not protected under employment law. Under the RESPECT program, we're setting up an independent standards council that will receive complaints, will be impartial, will be able to follow up and do impartial investigations into those complaints, and will offer remedies. So if in the case of someone who's a serial sexual predator, that person would be expelled. But for a lesser offense, then perhaps someone would undergo training or might get more of a slap on the wrist. You know, obviously the punishment fits the crime, but you need real consequences for people to expect them to change their behavior. What kind of fashion industry do you want to see us create? Because we can create it. We work in it. You know, we're here in this extraordinary place with all these stakeholders that are actually doing things every day to shape the industry that we're going to have tomorrow. What do you want to see for models? Beyond not, obviously having, being able to work free from groping hands, my God. But, <laughs> but what's your vision for a more sustainable, more ethical fashion industry and can we get one? My interest in changing the modeling industry is not particularly just models themselves, but in changing an entire global industry where models are the most visible and, you know, the faces of this industry. My sort of broad vision is to connect workers transnationally across the supply chain and to fundamentally change the way our industry does business. If you had a daughter, would you let her model it as a teenager? Oh my God, you're bringing back memories of Mother's Day dinner when my mom was nagging me to have children and reminding me of my narrow window of time to do that. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) So if I had a daughter, I don't know if if that will ever happen, but... um, Hopefully, right, I'll reframe it. If you could write a letter to yourself at 14, would you tell her to carry on as you, as you were going? Or would you say, no? I don't think that working as a model or working in fashion is inherently bad in any sense. I just think that there's this wealth of potential that's untapped. And so people are being held back sometimes in a way that's really affecting their health or their safety when they have enormous potential to be change agents in the world in a very influential industry. That's beautiful. You're a change agent. You're a change Ah, agent. (laughs) You're a change agent. No, you. Oh, it's getting hard. My parents feel that I'm defending you. I tell them all that they are wrong because I love you. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that. Because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. 
She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you Because I love you